now listening to Liberation. I'm your host, LaCroix Hatcher. Liberation presents Jerry Mitchell. Jerry is an author, investigative reporter, and founder of the Mississippi Center for Investigative Reporting. This episode, Jerry speaks on racial inequities in America, also his award-winning career, including his work to help convict members of the Ku Klux Klan, one of which was the murderer of civil rights leader, Mecca Evers. Please enjoy the show. Right, folks, um, I want to start this episode out by reading something. It's a pretty much a very famous quote, and it says, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Uh, we are caught in an inescapable network of neutrality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Uh, that comes from uh, Martin Luther King in 1963. Uh, which leads me to my guest this evening. Uh, my guest is a man that has tirelessly sought out justice for those who otherwise could not get it for themselves. Uh, his career began in 1983 in Arkansas for the Hot Springs Sentinel record and later found himself in Mississippi three years later working for the Clarion Ledger in which he would embark on a path that has placed him among legends in his field. Uh, and he isn't done with his course yet. Uh, he has received over 30 awards and is the author of the book Race Against Time. I have my brother in Christ with me, uh, Jerry Mitchell. Jerry, good evening. How are you doing? It's good to be with you. Thanks. Uh, appreciate it. No, I, I, again, I graciously appreciate your time. Um, upon doing my research, and I've been actually, uh, even before I sent out an invite to you, I watched and read a lot of your articles, watching videos. Uh, and, you know, I'm very, one, as a fellow brother in Christ, I'm inspired. And as a, um, I don't like to lead things with my race, but as a, a <laughs> black man in America, um, it just being is what it is. I'm definitely, uh, if you don't mind me saying I am, uh, gracious to your work, um, and and it, and it it's really inspiring, especially knowing that someone doesn't have to be as invested as they as you have been throughout all these years. And I'm sure I speak probably for um, African American society in general. Um, thank you, uh, and it, and it's it's your story is deeply moving, um, and I, I read that you don't like the word hero, uh, but you are a hero. You speaking for those that have lost their voice. Um, so again, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank, uh, thanks, thanks for your kind words. I mean, uh, as a as a person of faith, you'll know what I I mean when I say you know all glory goes to God. It's uh, yeah. it's. Uh, um. So what, um, let's start out, um, I'm going to start the typical route. Uh, what was your biggest inspiration becoming a, a journalist, uh, investigative reporter? Okay. Well, they're, they're, they're kind of different questions. I mean, the journalist part of it what inspired me to do that. My mom had me reading, uh, well, I don't think she made me, but I, I want, my mom took three newspapers a day and uh, plus magazines and so I 
kind of fell into her habit and was reading three news. By the time I was seven years old, I was reading three newspapers a day. So I, I, I you know, it's really no shock, I guess, in a way. I wound up in journalism. I, I always loved it and then, you know, fell in love with um, nonfiction writing. Um, and, that, you know, I kind of initially saw journalism as something to be able to get into to, because of the writing. And then once I, I got into it, I realized I was actually much more talented um, at reporting than I was at writing. Uh, I had really had to work on my writing. So, yeah, and I, I read a book called All the President's Men, which is uh, all about the Watergate um, investigation by Wooder and Bernstein, and that very much inspired me to want to go down that road of being an investigative reporter. Um, that is a film I uh, very much loved growing up in um in high school. Um, I've always been a fan of um of documentaries. Um, so I love historical stuff, especially uh things that happened. Let's just say the civil rights era, and that probably right. covers about the forties through the seventies. I'm I've always kind of been drawn to uh, things in that uh, in that era. Sure. Um, so, according to research I've done about you in terms of civil rights and coverings, uh, everything begins with the film Mississippi Burning. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I I guess that's a typical question. So um, just for my audience, could you all let? Me know? Well, I very simple. It was the premiere. In Jackson, it was the press premiere of the movie Mississippi Burning that I was assigned to go cover by an editor. Mm-hmm. And um, so I went and, and wound up seeing the movie with two FBI agents who investigated the case, as well as a journalist who wrote about the case. So I, this was all new to me. I, I mean, I knew none of what I was watching. And it is a fictional film. And it's not um, really attempting to be truthful <laughs> in a sense. It's really very much a fictional film other than the true events it's based on. But having said that, it's a very powerful film. And um, in terms of depiction of violence that took place in Mississippi and obviously elsewhere as well. It wasn't restricted in Mississippi. But I, this was all news to me, and it, and I grew up. I was a very young kid during this era, the '60s, and um, it all went over my head, and and so I didn't know any of this. It was, and so I'm sitting there watching this movie, get done with the movie, and start talking to these, what I call these old men, which they were now I'm about the same age they were <laughs> when I saw the movie, but. Uh, I, I just started. I, what I couldn't wrap my head around was there were more than twenty Klansmen involved in, involved in killing these three young men: uh, James Cheney, Andy Goodman, Mickey Schwerner, who were three civil rights workers who were working in the in the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. And the Klan didn't like them working on voting rights and things like that, so they killed them. It was really kind of a, an example, you know. They kind of. I think they thought if they killed them, then the other people would be scared and stay away or whatever. And so um, buried their bodies 15 feet down in earth and dam. Really a miracle they were ever found, uh, mm-hmm. if not for the tip they got 
um, around 40 days later, and they dug up the bodies 44 days later. Wow. It would have never been solved. But after, you know, there are more than 20 Klansmen involved in, killing, in a triple murder here. And I covered courts. I knew about courts. I knew about the way they worked or were supposed to work. And I just couldn't wrap my head around more than 20 Klansmen involved in a triple murder, and nobody ever got charged with murder. And I'm like, why is that? What what's going on? What, what nobody got charged with murder? You know, it just didn't it didn't compute with me. It made no sense. And they tried their best to explain it to me, but I I, I just couldn't believe it. I was like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> it's baffling. Um, now I know you grew up in Texas. Um, yeah, I did. Where town of Texarkana? Yeah. Now, were there situations similar in the state of Texas? Uh, I, I know you stated that, you know, that these kind of things were unfamiliar to you. Um, well, I know in retrospect, I know at the time I grew up, I didn't. Um, for example, there was a whole series of black churches burned in my hometown in the late 60s, early 70s. I knew nothing about growing up. Um, anyway. So it's 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 horrifying, you know, all these things that we find out. I think um, they may involve even our hometowns. Yeah. Mm. Now, um, you not knowing was this maybe just something? You know, sometimes uh, growing up as kids, some things you just don't know what you don't know. Yeah. Or, there's, yeah. Or like I um like I've uh, done a lot of reading and listening to things about the Tulsa incident. Um, or was this a situation where people just didn't want to speak on it anymore? Well, the the one in Texarkana, the rest of the story is that um, there was a, the, the churches, I believe I'm right, were rebuilt. I don't, I don't know if every single church was rebuilt, but I know they had, a, you know, like a combined service, white and black, and really were trying to make efforts uh, to make things right. Um, I know, for example, when I went to high school, um, uh, that our high school, which was kind of the main public high school in Texarkana, um, it was, what, 1,600 students. And we only had from 10th grade on, so it was pretty big. Um, But we had a, a black principal by that time. And I think that was kind of part of the, from what I understand, kind of the, for lack of a better term, the compromise worked out. I mean, they they, they basically shut down uh, the African American school and or made, turned it into a junior high, which has been pretty typical, I've found, in most of the southern cities. Yeah. And then the and then the high school became the place that black and white students came for high school. So uh, anyway, that was kind of what happened. And so. My hometown did make some efforts, for lack of a better term, to... Uh, I did know about one other incident uh, at my high school. There was kind of a race riot. That, wow. took, that was the way it was described to me. Uh, I wasn't there. It happened before I got to high school. Uh, okay. But I became aware of it not before, not before, not the time it happened, but when I got to high school, teachers talked about it. Talked about it. So that's, that's how I found out about it. Okay. Okay. Um, I've heard you in different interviews uh, speak about the uh, the Ku Klux Klan's intermingling with law enforcement. Oh, yeah. um, 
especially those that are um, sheriffs and things of that nature. So uh, whether Texas, Mississippi, whatever your experiences are, um, how did this affect a lot of the situations down south when it came to um, those fighting for civil rights? Well, I mean, you had law enforcement was cooperating with those who were, you know, dedicated to, I mean, law enforcement wanted to end, you know, wanted to stop any kind of desegregation as well. I mean, you know, these were all, these were all white law enforcement, you know, deputies, sheriffs, and, and there were a number of them who belonged to the Klan in Mississippi. It was, it was, Pretty common, either they were in the Klan or they sympathized with the Klan. I know. I'll give one example. Mm-hmm. Um, the police department in Meridian, Mississippi. Uh, I was told by somebody who who worked there. I mean, some people that work there. Uh, I knew several officers over there, and they they told me that the the police force was like half Klan. Oh wow! So. Half or more clans. So, you know, when you're dealing with that, the, the guy that was the main shooter in the um, in that in that in that the killings of three young men, uh, his brother was an officer at the Meridian Police Department. So, you know, these are these are not distant. You know, these things are not that distant. And I know there were, I believe I've got the number right. There was something like 120 law enforcement officers in that area, not necessarily just one county, but kind of in that area, Neshoba County, uh, Lardale County, which is where Meridian is, and maybe some of these other adjacent counties, but they had like 120 different law enforcement officers. Uh, some were auxiliary now, to be clear, not necessarily, you know, you know, full-time officers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there were 120 different law enforcement officers that were in uh, the Klan. Just in that, just in that area, I'm talking about. So there's, there's almost no way to obtain justice with that kind of ratio. Well, I, that's what I'm saying. I mean, it was all it was all rigged. It was not a situation where you were going to get any kind of justice. Um, have, have you ever? I don't know if I'm choosing the right word. Have you ever been astonished? Um, at the boldness or um, even the coldness of um, some of these uh, Ku Klux Klan members. Oh, yeah, sure. All the time. <laughs> I mean, that's what I described. I mean, the 20 guys getting away with murder. I mean, you what? You know, like I said, I covered courts. I mean, I saw people tried all the time for, you know, much more minor things. And um, anyway, it just astonished me and I mean, everything, I, I mean, especially when I got into um, the records of the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission, which was the state segregation spy agency, headed by the governor of Mississippi, that I knew nothing about. And um, most of this I knew nothing about, but especially that one I knew zero about. And when I got into that, I mean, I just, page after page after page, it shocked me. I mean, you had... Um, just different stories from that, you know, white kids that weren't allowed to go to school because they had a black um, grandmother. Hmm. You know, like they they were they were white, they looked white, but the one drop rule in Mississippi, you know, basically barred them from being able to 
to go to a white school, but they also couldn't go to a black school because if they did, that would be you would be desegregating the black school. Yeah. So they literally held these kids out of school until they're like ten years old. Oh it was yeah, so you see these two brothers that were that were held out. Literally, the school buses are pulling by, and you know, and, and they can't go to school. Wow. Yeah, so you, you just heartbreaking stuff that you see on this, you know, kind of the the uh, micro level as well. Um, and, and you know what? Go into detail about this board, this committee that you were talking about. Yeah, yeah. So, so the Sovereignty Commission was a state agency. It was headed by the governor of Mississippi. The rest of the members were like the top state leaders, like lieutenant governor, speaker of the house, uh, you know, all, all the top state leaders. And so, uh, lieutenant governor, you know, all the, all the, like I said, all the basic main people in state government. And so they would meet and then they, their whole purpose was to thwart uh, desegregation or integration. And so they would infiltrate civil rights groups. They had like spies that infiltrated civil rights groups and they would report back and, you know, they would try to smear civil rights activists, get them fired from their jobs. I and mean, then we, they would get people fired that didn't have anything to do with the civil rights movement. You know what I mean? I mean, they were just some guy would be walking down the street and they presume because he was walking down this particular street that was involved in the civil rights movement. That's that's kind of the way it worked. I mean, it was just awful. And then uh, white preachers who dared to suggest that, um, you know, maybe we should actually go to church together. <laughs> they would they would get them fired. They had a bunch. There were a bunch of white preachers that got fired in like '64, and so. Wow. Yeah, it was just it was just amazing. I mean, the the power and the reach they would um, they would basically get newspapers that were kind of on their side, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, like the Clarion Ledger, where I worked for many years, and and the Jackson Daily News, which are sister papers. But they would get them um, they would basically get them to run kind of this racist propaganda. Like stories, they just plant stories in the papers, and they'd be happy to run them, and they give them, you know, all these spy reports, and so there's more than 132,000 pages of these spy reports, and the Mississippi legislature it existed from the 1950s into the 1970s, and at that point in 1977, the Mississippi legislature voted to seal all those records for 50 years. Wow. So when I found that out, I don't know if you're like me, but if someone tells me I can't have something, <laughs> I like source. So I began to develop sources that access to the Sovereignty Commission records and began to get leaks of those files. And what they showed was the same time the state of Mississippi was prosecuting a guy named Byron Bill Beckwith for the murder of Meg Rivers. This other arm of the state Sovereignty Commission was secretly assisting defense trying to get Beckwith acquitted, and nobody knew that. So that story ran October 1st of 1989. Hmm. At the time that that story ran, the odds were literally more than a million to one against the case being reopened and re-prosecuted. There was no murder weapon, no court transcript, uh, no evidence of any kind. 
Um, but Merle Evers, the widow of Meg Evers, believed and she prayed and some amazing things happened. A couple months later, Jackson police cleaning out a closet, happened to find a box that contained a crime scene photographs of the killing of Meg Evers, including the fingerprint of Byron Deal Beckwith lifted from the murder weapon. Wow. A few months after that, um, Merle Evers shared a near copy of the court transcript that she had saved in a safety deposit box. And a few months after that, the prosecutor in the case found the murder weapon in his father-in-law's closet, which sounds like I'm making it up, but it really did happen. Yeah, it sounds like a movie script. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and, and listening to your story and, and reading, you know, article after article, it it still kind of astonishes me those that. Um, question systematic racism right. uh, and I've also lately been reading this book called The Color of Law which explains the different ways that um, whether overtly or covertly red zoning was set up to prevent right. uh, uh, integration Correct. Um, and to keep African Americans where they wanted to keep them in uh let's just say less savory parts of the neighborhoods yeah they um, didn't want them going into the white neighborhoods right right and how and, and one thing the value of their houses to to decline for example bingo and, and one thing that also actually surprised me um is thick as racial tensions were at that time uh and i think it was they you know they talked about everything in the 1920s how segregation wasn't so much prominent amongst the people themselves. It was kind of a uh a, govern, a government thing that yeah. really enforced it more so than the people right wanting to get away from one another per se. Right. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I'm just saying, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, if you just look at the history, I mean, I always just tell people, you know, just, you know, let let history tell you the truth. I mean, it's, you know, the truth is known out there. It's not, mm -hmm. it's not hidden. And um, although I got to tell you, a lot of people have read my book. It's been amazing to hear responses to it. And that they, they end up having the same reaction I had when I first got into this, which <laughs> I, I, I can't believe. No one ever told me any of this. I can't believe it, you know, especially uh, white readers. But I've had black readers say the same thing. They know, never taught me this in school. Um, people aren't learning this. We don't. That's what I, I, I would say is we we keep repeating our history because we don't know our history. Well, you, you, you're going to lead me to something. Uh yeah, I'll come back to that point <laughs> because uh, it definitely screams of um, and, and and I've heard you say because of a lack of our history. We like you said, we keep repeating the same thing and maybe a, a generation of people need to be, for lack of better words, flushed out before we uh, basically see a, a better day in America. But biblically, it kind of reminds me of the first generation of Israelites, right. how they had to be swallowed up. Second generation comes. Moses gave them the warning. But if you don't heed, 
you're bound to repeat these same things over and over and over again. And we find that, you know, though we don't find white, black in the Bible, we definitely see segregation, not segregation, discriminatory issues all the way down to the church. Oh, yeah. I mean, the the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Exactly. That's, you know. They, the Jews regarded the Samaritans as dogs, you know. And he just turns around and tells this story with the Good Samaritan. Don't you, don't you know they felt insulted? You know, the Good Samaritan, what? <laughs> Jesus said, hey, the tax collectors are going to get in ahead of you. Well, I hated the tax collectors. So it's just, um, yeah, it's a good reminder to all of this. I, mean, I, think, I just think that you know, regardless of race, I, I think for all of this, we... Um, there's a pattern that we see uh, as you read read the Bible. You see this pattern repeated over and over again of people. You know they they, they draw close to God, and then things start going great, and then they start forgetting about God. And you know, um, and so yeah, that tends to be the the pattern of our entire history, unfortunately. Yeah. So okay, how often? Um your, these family members, um, just to say the lawyers, uh, witnesses, um, with the climate and violence during that time, did you, were any of these groups or how often were these groups reluctant for you to uh, bring up some of the past bigotry uh, as far as trying to get justice for them? Yeah, well, I mean, each in its own way. I mean, you had um, certainly with the families. I mean, this is it's very painful to them, and so it, they they were very courageous. I mean, they they could it would have been a lot easier, I'm sure, for these families to say, you know, we've been through enough. You know, uh, this is incredibly painful, um, but. You know, we're we're not going to do that. So uh, certainly the families deserve a lot of credit for their courage. And in the early Evers, uh, put it this way, was it was like a wound that had never really been healed. Mm-hmm. And so you, in order to heal the wound, you had to go in and 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 cleanse that wound yeah. before it could be healed. Or you you had to go in, you had to go in there into the wound, which is painful. Yeah. And, uh, in order for that kind of healing to take place, so I think there's truth to that. I think that you know, it, when we we just don't people in general don't like to go into these quote unquote uncomfortable areas, which I find a rather ironic term. <laughs> these are more than uncomfortable areas. These are. Uh, you know, incredible violence and, and yeah. racism in these days. And um, and yet people don't want to talk about it. It's like, why not? You know, this is history. This isn't, you know, it's not even that distant history. So. No. In terms of overall history, when you, you know, when you're reading whether uh, it's not like we're looking at times of the Constitution or things like that. I mean, 50, yeah, years, 50 years in the grand scheme of things is a long time. It's within my own lifetime, most of these events. Um, Now, in your opinion, uh, what what gives uh, 
many of the southern uh Caucasian men and women the inferiority complex that they had during this time frame if you had to really get to the heart of it they had inferiority complexes you mean was that is that the way you take it that they were infer- felt inferior or threatened by maybe threatened by you know um um I think there I think there was certainly fear. Hmm. Um see I think uh, a lot of times people talk about hate, but I think what precedes hate is fear. Hmm. You know, when you know, when people fear they dehumanize and make people less than. And so uh let's say they fear like we're talking about desegregation or they fear uh you know black family moving down the street or whatever it is you know in those days that they quote feared um rather than confronted the fear they you know they would throw up all these other things to justify uh their racism right so those are the kind of things that that took place i think there's a lot of fear and that drove a lot of actions Wow. A lot of the violence that took place, and this violence is historical. This is not like this is not an aberration. This is taking place throughout history in this country, and not just in the South. And, and the reason I use inferiority complex, and and I just definitely understand what you're saying. Um, you know, there's often times where you come across things where. Uh, you have men and women that feel like, hey, my 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 mother, my father worked for these things. They started this country. I'm right. not going to let someone else infringe right. on that. Yeah, kind of more uh, um, more the opposite, more like pride almost. You know, mm-hmm. they they get their pride and their identity from that, and therefore, how dare you? You know, do something that would damage that in their minds or whatever, whatever their thinking is. Right. Um, at the Clarion Ledger, uh, where you really um, got your foot wet, for lack of better words. Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> I was there for over thirty years. So yeah, absolutely. That's, and that's tremendous in and of itself, considering what you were doing. Um, did they ever place any pressure on you to to stop? The investigations due to loss of subscribers, death threats, you name it. No, no. In fact, I was talking to one of my old bosses. I had dinner with him this weekend, past weekend, and we were talking about that. And of course, he got some awful calls. And people were canceling subscriptions. And they they hated. I mean, there are a lot of people that hated what I wrote. So, I, I mean, I, I had a, a pretty good list of enemies. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. So, I mean, for the for for the most part, I mean, uh, you know, Clarence Ledger and editors and uh, and that editor, by the way, I'm talking about, uh, happened to be African American. So, hmm. I mean, he had he had white people calling him, and, and they and by the phone call, they couldn't tell he was black, and so they'd be, you know, you know how they'd be talking to him, you know, right. <laughs> and he'd have to let them know. Oh, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Um, so this, now this kind of goes to current day. Um, what, 
in your opinion again, why is it so hard for uh and I'll broad stroke it. That's how how why is it so hard for Caucasians to accept the evil side of America's past? Um it's uncomfortable. I mean they don't like it. Um for lack of a better term, it makes you know, quote unquote makes them look bad. You know what I mean? And and it's just an understanding. I mean, it's it's just truth. I mean, I, I, that's what I don't understand. It's just the truth. I'll give an example. When I was at the Clarion Ledger, I wrote stories, and especially one story. It was kind of the main first story I wrote. I wrote a story just basically uh, totally trashing the Clarion Ledger while I was working at the Clarion Ledger. <laughs> and it was basically a story about how that it and the Jackson Daily News, as I kind of mentioned earlier, would print this racist propaganda. And I had documents to show what all was happening behind the scenes. And as I said to them at the time, if we don't publish this, somebody else is going to come, you know, somebody else will publish this one day. Mm-hmm. You know, and wouldn't you rather be the one to publish it? And so they agreed, and we published it. So you 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 expose, look, you, there's wrongdoing, and, and, you know, our own, it's a good lesson for all of us. Mm-hmm. Is you know, it's it's so much easier if we get honest about our past instead of trying to conceal our past or to, or to downplay it or to say, oh, let's not talk about that. And I mean, it works on both a societal level and a personal level. Absolutely. I don't think people can understand that. And it's when we begin to be honest that we can begin to have these conversations. I mean, I'd, I'd be the first to say about myself. I mean, I, 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 you know, I knew nothing. I mean, I just knew nothing. And and therefore, you know, my mentality about, you know, the African-American experience is much different today than it was when I started this journey. Okay. Uh, thank, thank God, you know. Um, there's definitely been a lot of God's providence in your Absolutely. Life. I mean, just over and over again, it was... Uh, um, yeah, I went and interviewed. Uh, I, I meant to I was, say this earlier. Uh, I went to interview one of these killers. Mm-hmm. This was Byron D. LeBeck, who, who assassinated Megar Evers in 1963. So, uh, every one of these killers I've talked to. Now, the one, uh, Sam Bowers, I can get a sit down interview with. I did talk to him one time on the phone. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, Anyway, I went and interviewed Beckwith. He lived in Signal Mountain, Tennessee. We talked for about six hours. Absolutely most racist person I've ever spent serious time with. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, in order to get there, I I should tell this part of it, in order to even get in his door, Mm -hmm. I had to pass the quiz. And the quiz was... What what are your you know what are your mom and dad's names? <laughs> where did you grow up? Oh my. You know, uh, you know where did you go? You know where did you go to college? Where did you? I, I mean, he asked me where do you go to church? All those kind of questions, and I could have refused to answer, but I knew he'd love my answers. You know, you know, I knew at least I thought he would. And sure enough, he's like, come on. So, so anyway, I sat down with him for six hours, 
just so racist. You know how some people you, I mean, inward this, inward that, and then he started on other non-white races. He was a part of what's called Christian identity, which is kind of this white supremacist religion, uh, which is another topic we could talk about for a while. Um, but anyway, it's starting to get dark, and I thought it's probably a good time to go. And so uh, he insisted on like walking me out to my car. You know, which is just at the end of the driveway. You know, mm-hmm. and I'm like, yeah, that that's okay. I, mean, I think I can find my way. Oh my, I think I can manage it this way. <laughs> I think I can. I think I can <laughs> so he walked me out to the car anyway. He gets me out there and says, "If you write positive things about white Caucasian Christians, God will bless you." <laughs> If you write negative things about white Caucasian Christians, God will punish you. Mm. God does not punish you directly. Several individuals will do it for him. Oh, man. There's an underlying tone there. <laughs> and so his wife had made me a sandwich. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> You can probably guess what I did with that sandwich after that remark. I'll go to McDonald's. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Um, is America whitewashing? Oh, you said with regard to our past? Yes. I I think it's just, I think that's why I'm hopeful about my book, and I don't mean it in a selfish way, um, that I think my book is one of those means by which people can read. You know, it's just, at its most basic level, it's a detective story, it's a procedural, it's a, a, you know, it's just very, you know, tells how these cases can be reopened. Mm-hmm. And and therefore, people can kind of get caught up in that story. But at a, at a deeper level, it's telling a history that a lot of us, including myself, didn't really grow up with and didn't know. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I, like I said, I continue to get emails all the time from people uh, who've read the book and say, I had no idea. Had some 66-year-old white woman from Georgia write me and say, I'm ashamed I didn't know this history. Mm. So just to let you know, not all of it is willful, if that makes any sense. Not all of it's willful desire to not know, but it's just um, ignorance or whatever you want to call it. Or, and, just, um, and I don't mean ignorance in a, in a derogatory way. I just mean Absolutely. ignorance in a... And, and just not knowing. Mm-hmm. And so I, that's why I think, my, at least, I think my book is maybe one way people, if they'll read it, can kind of begin to fill in those gaps. It's just a start, really, to be honest. Yeah, and and that's and I love that answer. And the, and the reason I asked that, um, because, you know, I remember you, when we kind of started out, you were saying, this is so much I didn't know. Oh, and, yeah. And I have um, a 22-year-old and a 12-year-old, mm-hmm. and me and their uh, mother often tell them uh, how little they even know about black history. And exactly. I remember distinctly when I was young, um, we learned about Crispus Attucks, Benjamin Banner, um, W.E.D. Du Bois. It was more than just Martin Luther King. It seems like exactly. our school system has shrunk it down to just maybe Martin Luther King, Selma, a little bit of things, Rosa Parks, usually, and usually, it stops. Usually it's uh, the way it gets reduced is this. Rosa Parks sat down, Dr. King stood up, 
black Americans got their rights. Ta-da! Yeah. <laughs> and, and now you add President Obama to it, and that's all they really talk yeah, about. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And, you know, and then the first pre- black president, you know, and, 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 you know, and, and now everybody can sing Kumbaya, and, and, you know, it's kind of the way it comes off, you know. <laughs> right. But, but you're right. I mean, there's so many people that uh, get left out in that, in that story. I mean, uh, I mean, for example, let's just take a real simple example, Rosa Parks. Mm-hmm. Rosa Parks wasn't even the first black woman to get arrested on a bus in Montgomery for refusing to give up her seat in 1955. Right. She was the fifth. <laughs> she was the fifth. Right. So uh, it's 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 fascinating how history gets written sometimes. So it's it's uh, but when you know the whole story and the other thing to her credit, she was involved in the movement way back. I mean the 30s. Absolutely. She investigated the. Uh, you know, the rapes of black women that, you know, went unprosecuted and things like this. And, and so, um, yeah, she was, she was a force of nature. And I think she gets remembered for the you know, refusing to give up her seat. But, I mean, if you know that her whole story, man, what a woman. Yeah. You know? Fantastic. Um, so, especially as a, as a journalist, um, and you have you you have the ability to see things from a holistic level. Um, kind of explain to the audience uh, how the things of the past are affecting America in today's climate. Well, you know, William Faulkner has that really famous quote, you know, about the past. You know, you know, it, it, you know the. You know the the past isn't even past. You know what I mean? I mean it's it's and 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 anybody who knows anything about history knows that history uh, circular is not the right word, but it's it's like a cycle that goes round and round. And so we tend to repeat these things anyway. But especially if we don't know them, we repeat them, mm-hmm. and we tend to go through the same kind of things. I mean, for example. Um, you know, voting rights. I mean, um, every time that there's been a real push for voting rights, there's been reaction to that. And so it's been very fascinating to look at that historically. Um, every time that there's kind of been, for lack of a better term, black progress in this country, mm-hmm. there has been pretty much most times in this country's history a violent reaction to that. Right. You know, if you're talking about Reconstruction, or one or two, um, you know, all those lynchings that took place, the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's just a, a whole long list of things. And a lot of the people that signed, um, they were part of what was called uh, the Constitutional Convention in Mississippi during Reconstruction, were assassinated. Wow. I mean, assassinated. And there were these just massacres of people. Uh, you know, black Mississippians that took place during Reconstruction and after. And so, you know, don't don't talk to me about how, you know, <laughs> this is some kind of exaggeration or something. Yeah. This is this is purposeful. I mean, in Aberdeen, Mississippi, I think it was in 1872. I may 
maybe off a year or two, but somewhere in that, that time frame, they set up a cannon at the voting booth. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I mean, come on. Why? They did not want black people voting. Black men at that point, black men voting. They did not want that. And so they set up a cannon. And there were all these killings um, all over the place. And, I, you know, it ain't in any history books I've read. You know, I'm talking about, you know, like for, for students. Yeah. yeah. It just doesn't get talked about. And uh, I have on my Facebook page, uh, I post every day kind of this day in civil rights history. And almost every day people come back and say, I never knew that. Right. It's just because we don't know our history. Yeah. Um, and here's one thing I struggle with. Um, sure. Is America seemingly uh, wanting to slam the door on the egregious acts of the past while at the same time being empathetic towards those that aren't on American soil? Or those trying to get to American soil, but they haven't reconciled what has happened in the oh, past. Oh yeah, well, that's, I, I mean, uh, here's a perfect example of it. And I'm, you know, and look, it, all right. So people make it mad at this analogy, but I, I don't. Anyway, but um, 1990s, um, the the Holocaust Museum was built in Washington. Mm-hmm. And it's an incredible museum. I highly recommend it to anybody. It, it, it's incredibly moving. It's incredibly tragic. Um, but we also need to recognize what it is. It is something that happened an ocean away. Exactly. And the American African American Museum, how long ago did it open? Not that long ago, right? A so, up ago. Yeah, and so you think about it from those perspectives, you go, well, why was it so easy for us to open up a, a you know some you know horrible thing that happened overseas, which I'm all for. I believe me, I'm not knocking the Holocaust mm-hmm. in one iota in saying this, but I find it interesting, for lack of a better term, if you want to put it in safe terms, it's interesting to me that we have no trouble pointing out the sins of others, mm-hmm. but when it comes to our own sins. Yeah, we're not so eager. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and and you know what? It's it's insulting. Um, and and I know during the um, you know the uh, the the climate of the previous uh, president uh, and the things that happened as far as people attempting to get to American soil and this that, and the third. And while not. I have to choose my words carefully while not siding with the president per se. Again, we haven't healed the wounds that Ms. Edgar, uh, Megar Evers was speaking of. Um, You want to take care of the world, but you don't want to take care of your own home first. And I I find that very problematic. Well, I find language is very telling regardless of who says it. Um, and when you start to hear, whether it's politicians or preachers or whoever, mm-hmm. um, start to use language toward fellow humans like, you know, they're, they're murderers and they're rapists or they're, you know, or, or monsters or, 
You know, there's a, a really good book I read years ago. Um, it's called Faces of the Enemy. Mm-hmm. It's by a guy named Sam Keen. And the whole point of the book is this, and, and really it's, you know, very much relates to what we would, we as people of faith believe as well. But what he says is before we kill with our weapons, we kill with our minds. Mm. And that's exactly it. Because if you, if you make someone a monster, if someone is a quote unquote monster, well, if you, if you kill them, aren't you doing society a favor? Mm. And so language matters. And so I think the language that people use, regardless of what position they hold, really matters. And, and we need to be very, very careful, um, especially as Christians, I think, to, um, what kind of language we use toward others? Am I, do I really love my brother? You know, we're, we're, we're taught not only to love our brothers and sisters, but to love our enemies, you know? Yeah. What was Jesus thinking, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but it's true. I mean, that's a very difficult thing to do. It's, but yet, we are, and the reason is because we were enemies. Mm-hmm. And and we've been reconciled uh, to God. So how can we not be grateful and want to extend reconciliation to others? Right, right. And part yeah. of reconciliation is making amends. You know, when I've wronged somebody, I can't just say, oh, you know, I'm sorry, and, and walk away. Mm-hmm. You you make amends. You try to make it right. Right. And that's right. what I see we, the process we haven't gone through as a country that mm-hmm. we need to really seriously think about and have conversations about. Yeah. And, and, and even aside the, the press, the past uh, presidential term, um, and, and I don't want to make this an issue where uh, me being a, a black male, I have an issue with other uh, ethnicities because that's not the case. But like you said, the truth is the truth. And um, I've seen this country historically, uh, especially the last um, century or two, they bend over backwards for our Israeli brothers um, Mm -hmm. while not showing that same vigor to help those that helped establish this country. It just is what it is. Um, sure. I, I, I'm careful about using the term built on our backs, but mm-hmm. a lot of the things that happened in America couldn't have happened without the African-American assistance, even though it was forced labor. Um, well, it it, it couldn't happen without us. So, you know, it, there has to be some type of reconciliation to that besides just, a Bill Clinton apology. No, that's what I mean. I mean, it, it, it's it's uh, you, you try to make amends, you try to make it right. I mean, uh, I did a story a couple years ago, and I had, I couldn't find a figure, so I was able to get help from someone that helped me find the figures and be able to do the math on it. Mm-hmm. But there were, um, I was curious how much black schools were underfunded here in Mississippi. You know, this is I'm talking about during days of segregation. Mm-hmm. So between 1890 and 1960, how much less did black schools get per student than white schools? 
And the answer is, in modern dollars, $25 billion. That's just Mississippi. That's a staggering figure for a, for a state that has not been since 1890 a very wealthy state. Yeah. Uh, so when you start, and, and but you see the pictures from the 50s, I mean, they have these really nice brick brand new schools for the white kids and mm-hmm. and uh, at the same time you've got these black schools that were like wooden you know with holes in the walls you know a stove in the middle you know a wood stove in the middle of the school one room schoolhouses the over glorified sheds yeah it was shacks there is no other word for it they were shacks and and you're going, are you kidding me? Hmm. Um, there's an exhibit on this, actually, in the, in the Mississippi Civil Rights Museum, which I highly recommend if anyone uh, is able, does come to Jackson. Uh, it's one of the best regional civil rights museum uh, museums in the country. Actually, Oprah does the, does the voice for that, so. That kind of analysis. She's from Mississippi, of course, originally. So uh, that's right. That's right. Um, outside of obvious racism, uh, um, why do you think bills like the uh, Emmett Till uh, Anti-Lynching Act can go motionless, um, while Asian hate bills can be accelerated? Um, is there outside of the racism portion of it? Are there financial implications behind these kind of uh, movements, or what do you think? Well, when the original act passed, uh, I'm I'm maybe off on the year, original year passed, uh, somewhere between 2007-2009, I think is when it finally passed. It passed with zero funding. So the Justice Department had to do it with zero funding. And the whole idea behind it was for local communities that wanted to pursue these cold cases could be able to hire, let's say, uh, an investigator and other things like that mm-hmm. in pursuit of these cases. But that didn't happen, so there's no funding. Um, and, you know, funding often defines what, you know, is important. Mm-hmm. So, uh, that's... Yeah, yeah, it's 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 age old. I mean, you you get a law passed and it sounds like a great law, but then they don't, you know, they don't fund it. So it's it makes it a lot more difficult. And for the FBI, it was like, you know, I, I don't know. I, you know, my impression was it was a, a list that they wanted a checklist in their mind instead of like viewing it from a perspective of, hey, let's you know. Which cases in here are viable and can be prosecutable? And, and they, I'm sure they thought about it that way as well. But anyway, it just – when I have an FBI agent call me and laugh, I don't have just the absolute confidence that it's really being pursued seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Uh, so um, I'm sure you getting on the wrong side of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, you got some threats out there. Uh, so speak to the type of threats you may have gotten for kicking up dust on these cases and talk about living fearlessly. Yeah, well, yeah, I, you know, it's, you know, um, living, you know, I got, I've got plenty of dozens of death threats. You know, I had one guy 
said he was going to slit my throat. Another guy, another Klansman, said he had pictures of me and knew where I lived. Hmm. And, um, you know, wife and kids and all that stuff, you know, obviously come to play in that. And so, obviously, that's disconcerting. All that's disconcerting, but it lends an unexpected gift, and that's the gift of living fearlessly. And living fearlessly is not about living without fear. It's about living beyond fear. Hmm. It's about living for something greater than ourselves. And that's what you, you know, that's what we see in the civil rights movement. Dr. King and Medgar Evers, many others, mm-hmm. they were living for something greater than themselves. Yeah. And as people of faith, we know this well ourselves that we live for something greater than ourselves. And therefore, you see characters like uh, a Peter and a Paul who um, are willing, you know, basically executed for what they uh, believed. And they were willing to, even if it meant death, mm-hmm. uh, continue on that road. Um, so how did you come to Christ in the first place? Well, you know, I was... I was a kid, and I, you know, as we would say, I grew up in the church, or however you want to put it, you know. Right. <laughs> my, you know, I, I, I could drag every, drag the church every time the doors were open, you know. Uh-huh. So I, I, I became Christian pretty young. I was like nine years old, I think it was. Okay. Uh, I remember, my dad gave me this quiz, like, and he wanted to make sure, you know, because he knew I was young, and so, and I, I got. I, I passed the quiz, so my dad was like, okay. <laughs> Go get in that water. <laughs> get you wet, boy. So, uh, yeah, so I, I, I was baptized at, at age nine, and, uh, yeah, so, yeah, it was, uh, you know, but I think, like a lot of us, I think um, we all experience at some point, you know, kind of, at least I hope most of us do, if nothing else, maybe a a reawakening or whatever you want to call it. And and for me, that came when I was about 40. And um, really, I'm so grateful for it because I, you know, I I really, I think that's when I really became a Christian. And, And it coincided with my walk with what I was going through with these cases as well. I really kind of came to really truly understand what justice meant mm. and okay. you know we like we read matthew twenty five and we don't justice isn't necessarily the word that comes to mind, but really that's what that is. Justice yeah. is about treating the least of these like we want to be treated that's justice it's not just what happens in a courtroom absolutely absolutely it's um it's it's a call into action it is it is uh and um, what and what is the congregation you currently attend? Uh, Skyway Hills, yeah, in Pearl. So, so with that being said, and, and you said you ran into um, a reawakening in your forties. Um, how does the gospel fit into your work currently? Um, how does the gospel? Um, I, I think I kind of know the answer to this, but where does the gospel provide inspiration? Well, um, in terms of my work, you mentioned that initially, um, God loves justice. Amen. It is a part of his very nature. 
And for those of us who are Christians, you know, it's not just God's mercy and forgiveness and grace at the cross. It's also God's justice. Mm-hmm. And we don't talk much about that. That that had to take place, too. Yeah. And so God's all about justice. He loves justice. And, and thank God he is, because can you imagine having an arbitrary God who said, like, yeah, you're okay, but you're not okay. You know, just arbitrarily. I mean, it would be awful. Uh, in fact, you know, God, it look, it's the great reversal. You see, when Jesus comes on the scene, who's attracted to him? Yeah. The the prostitutes, the the you know the the tax collectors, the people that were rejected by society, yeah, um, are the ones attracted to him. And I don't think that's really changed. I think, um, unfortunately, sometimes what happens is uh, that message is altered uh, because I think to this day the attraction is not because of what he demands. You know, uh, I think sometimes we try to turn it into some kind of like Kiwanis Club or something. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and and, and it's just, no, no, that's not what he meant. Right, right. it's a Kiwanis Club. I just think you <laughs> yeah, just <laughs> I understand. Um, yeah, he's come to rescue us. Those that have um, seen we, the darker side of life. Yeah, well, we we humble ourselves. We confess our sins. We repent. We turn around. We don't keep walking the same way. And 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 you know, God loves the humble. He comes into their presence if we're. Got a, got pride, and he's not going to come into our presence. And so that's why, you know, why, you know, the woman that wiped Jesus' feet with her tears, you know, and, you know, you see that whole scene, you know, the Pharisee, Simon the Pharisee, who looks down on this woman, and then Jesus pretty much says, who's going to appreciate it is the one who's been forgiven more. And so I think that's why so often people who maybe have not grown up as Christians wind up being so much more grateful and um, they, they, they understand they've been rescued. Amen. Um, and as a Christian, um, you've been surrounded by some evil people. I have. Um, <laughs> I forgot to talk about you. <laughs> how how does it feel to be surrounded by that type of evil? Like we all we we and I don't want to be overly. This is going to sound weird. This is, I don't want to be overly biblical about it because there's there, I deal with the humanity side of it. Um, we are, yeah. we're, we have all fallen short, but then there's this next level of evilness. Um. What you may not find yourself capable of. Well, there are certain people where you come in their presence, you, you you kind of feel like you're in the presence of, of evil. You know what I mean? I yeah. Mean, yeah. I mean, when I was uh, when I was interviewing Byron D. Beckwith, I mean, I definitely felt that way. It was not, you know, and this is this is a wild detail, and this doesn't have to do with that per se, but it just gives you how wild it was. So in the, in the middle of this interview, his wife brings him something to drink. And I looked over it, you know, looked over and it looks like orange soda, but it's like bubbling furiously like some kind of mad scientist potion. Like, <laughs> what the heck is that? So I asked him, he explained to me it was 
Um, it was it was orange soda, but it was combined with food grade hydrogen peroxide, and it was like, oh no! Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! You can't make this stuff up. It was just it just felt. I mean, he just felt evil. I mean, you know, a lot of what he had to say, and and uh, it, it was definitely. You felt you were in the presence of evil. There's no yeah. question. Uh, um, I remember Edgar Ray Killen, who was kind of the guy that orchestrated the killing of three civil rights workers I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. It was, this was in a documentary. He, I wasn't in person when he did this, but I noticed in this documentary that at one point he had, he had actually he disparaged me as who he disparaged. He was he was chastising me. It's in the documentary, mm-hmm. and uh, um, and he's talking about I don't I don't want to I don't want to cause him any harm unless I can be the one to promote it. That's what he uh. said. And but when he got done, the way he did his tongue, it looked like a snake. You know, what oh, I mean? wow. and you're going, wow. Oh, it's just like. Really, that's so fascinating. Uh, it's, um, but, but I can think of some different words than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the thing is, really fascinating though is, you know, we don't always recognize evil as it is. I mean, I think that's the other part that we got to be careful of. I think sometimes it's real easy to think of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the devil with red horns and the tail, and he comes in. He's so recognizable. But there, there's certainly plenty of evil um, that may not come in and, and be nearly as obvious. Okay, so the next set of questions, um, and I try not to hold you. This has been fascinating. I could probably talk to you for the next 24 hours. Um, and we talked about America's uh, lack of recompense with the things that have happened. Uh why does the church and or religious circles struggle with this, um, with empathy towards uh, race uh, incidents? Because especially when you look at like uh, Romans twelve fifteen, right. where you're supposed to basically celebrate with those that are celebrating, weep with those that are weeping. And right. you may not know the fine details. You may not even understand it, but you're at least supposed to be consoling to one another. Why does the church of all places struggle with that? Because we don't know. We think we know, but we don't know. I mean, this is it. I mean, I'll give a simple example, and then I'll give another example, a little more, uh, one really close to my heart. But this is one, we think we know, like, as a white American, I can say this. As a white American, you know, even now I think, oh, yeah, I know what black Americans go through, you know. Mm-hmm. But if I'm really honest, you know, there are times when I find out things and I realize, you know, really know. You know what I mean? Like you think you know, but you don't really know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what's the old saying, you know, Native American, you know, don't don't judge a man until you walk a mile in his moccasins, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. And we just don't have that experience. We think the white Americans think they understand the black American experience, but they don't, you know. Um, and I can give a number of examples along the way, and these are things I've learned. Um, 
Well, I'll mention another one. Like, um, I was sitting around, I was interviewing, and these were some three guys that went to prison for something they didn't do. They were totally innocent. They were railroaded. They went to prison. Um, awful situation. The guy, you know, basically lied, you know, pressured to confess and then lie. And anyway, the whole thing. And so these guys were innocent. DNA basically cleared them. And so they're free. And I'm talking to these black families. And they start talking about, you know, Parchman, which was the state prison at that point, was the only prison initially in Mississippi. And it's way up in the Delta. And I was talking to some people in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, which is about an hour south of Jackson. So it was, you know, a four-hour trip or something like that. And they started talking about these families, started talking about carpooling. And I'm going, wow. You know, that, you know, like within my white bread experience, mm-hmm. I never thought about, you know, this family member and now another family member. You know, and you're going, you can see how that would affect your mindset toward the criminal justice system and et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, to not have any clue. I'll give a, I'll give a better example. Sure. Um, so this was during, uh, during the trial of Byron D. Beckwith, which was in 1994. And so it was, you know, it gets to the point the jury gets you know, the jury goes starts deliberating, and they were both white and black. It was a mixed jury, unlike the first juries that Beckwith had, which were all white and all male. And mm-hmm. so, um, anyway, they they deliberated a few hours, and it was getting late, or the, what the judge the time the judge wanted to break, which I think was like six thirty or something like that. And they so they've been deliberating a few hours. Mm-hmm. They come back in the courtroom, and it is obvious that these jurors have been arguing like angrily. I mean one white woman was just red faced. Just red faced and I'm like I'm thinking to myself this is going to be another hung jury just like it was back in 64 These yeah. cop, this cop lied and claimed he saw Beckwith in Greenwood, Mississippi I know they're lying um, and so you know, jury, you know, so we go home. Get home that night, and I'm talking to Marley Evers on the phone. She and I used to talk on the phone almost every night you know, during the trial and during that whole time. And she told me a story she never told me. It went the night that her husband was assassinated. You know, he was shot in the back yeah. in his own driveway. And, you know, you can imagine this her own driveway. By the way, they didn't have a front door. Did you know that that house was built without a front door on purpose so that they wouldn't be a target? Hmm. So, so people couldn't kill them, you know, coming in and out of the front door. Wow. The irony. Yeah. So he was coming in the carport. So uh, he got, as soon as he got out of the car, he got shot in the back. The bullet went through the window into the kitchen, hit the hit the refrigerator. Um and um so Merle Evers heard the shot and so the kids and she ran outside, saw the blood, screamed. My lord. 
and of course, you know, the daughter went out, Daddy, get up, Daddy, get up. And of course, he never got up. He was rushed to the hospital. And of course, did not survive. And so Merle ever said, you know, these white bystanders started coming up because we were right next to a white neighborhood. Um, there's a white bystander coming up, and then here come the police. And, of course, they're all white. And, um, and Merle ever told me, if I'd had a machine gun that night, I would have killed everybody who was white. Mm-hmm. And I realized when she told me that, I had no idea what she had gone through, her family, everybody, in any of these cases. So the next day, trial, the jury comes back in. Guilty. And when the word guilty rang out, you could hear these waves of joy as they cascaded down the hall until they reached a foyer full of people, black and white, just erupted in cheers. Mm. And I just felt chills because the impossible had suddenly been impossible. Yeah. And Merle Evers told me afterward that when she heard that word guilty, it was like every bit of hate and anger in her body went out every pore of her body. Yeah. Miracles, miracles still happen. That's miracles. powerful. That's powerful. That's powerful. Uh, yeah. How, how um, segue from that just a tad. Um, how's the uh the congregational family? Um, at Skyway yeah. Hills. How how are they supporting you? Well, they've been very supportive. Uh, we're a mixed congregation and, uh, been incredibly supportive. And, um, yeah, and, and, and we've talked about these things and as we should. Um, uh, these are important things to talk about and, and we can't just ignore them, you know, pretend that didn't happen or decide they're uncomfortable and <laughs> not talk about them. So, uh, yeah, you know, COVID obviously has hurt, I think, almost all, you know, in terms of gathering, you know, people has, has affected, you know, all the churches, so, uh, which I hate. But anyway, I'm hopeful that um, soon that we, we will be able to meet as before. So, yeah. anyway. so 2018, uh, you co found the Mississippi Center for investigative reporting I did. Um, what led you to create this and uh, speak to the work you and your staff do well I, I mean I we need more investigative reporting not less especially here in Mississippi and so that's why uh, we started and we wanted to we want to train up the next generation of investigative reporters I mean I think it's important you know uh, unfortunately you know there have been Newsrooms have been decimated, period, and investigative reporting is usually the first thing to go. So there's, you know, other than me and a few others, there are almost no um, investigative reporters in Mississippi, just a handful. I'm actually surprised by that, considering um, the TMZ world that we're in today. Um, people love salacious reporting or fact-finding, if you will. Um, 
Well, they might like salacious reporting. You know, sometimes, you know, investigative reporting people may or may not want to hear. I mean, but, yeah, it's it's important. Uh, people need to know these things. It's, um, you know, we did a whole expose on the prison system in Mississippi, and Justice Department's investigating that. I've got another case I wrote about. It's kind of like Mississippi's George Floyd case. Mm-hmm. And, and um, so the FBI looks like, looks like the FBI is investigating uh, that case now, and so um, it's going to be interesting to see. We'll see what what transpires, but um, yeah, and then uh, we, we're writing now about all things diabetes, um, but it's an important issue. Uh, a lot of you know during COVID, for example, uh, the, you know this pandemic since last year, uh, more people have died aside from COVID, like. Um, the diabetes deaths went up, I think, fifteen percent, and not, not, you know, not COVID. You know, these were. I'm not talking about the COVID deaths. Mm-hmm. <laughs> diabetes. A lot of people that got COVID and died had diabetes. Yeah. So I, you know, so they, 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 but it even went beyond that. Uh, so you had a lot, lot of higher, you know, greater increase in diabetes deaths in the wake of this. A lot of people don't realize. I mean, uh, right now in America, there are more more than half the adults are either diabetic or pre-diabetic. People don't realize that. So um, it's important yeah. to know. People. It really decimates the black community. It's it's tremendously for the black community, uh, for the Native American community, for the Hispanic community. Mm-hmm. The rates are higher. Race or higher in all those communities, and um, if if people want to know the the even if you don't care about the health of others, you should care about the cost, right? You're, you're going to care about the cost, I presume. Hmm. Three hundred and twenty-seven billion a year. The diabetes costs this country more per year than cigarette smoking. Wow. Wow. In terms of health consequences. And if you have diabetes, your life will be shortened about the same amount that the cigarette smoker will be. I can see that. Yeah. And let alone the uh, physical impairment. It's a cascading illness. And the good news is type 2... we can do some things about it. I mean, it doesn't mean it, it you know, um, we can begin to try to eat better. We can begin to try to exercise more. And there are some things we can do to attack it. Um, but we've got to be more serious about it. We're, we're just not serious about diabetes. We, And we it's the typical thing. Well, it's, you know, it's their fault. <laughs> yeah. And instead of understanding that even type 2 is genetic, the people, you know, have no control, you know, um, they had a young journalist just worked for us who's 17 years old. She has type 2 diabetes. She's skinny as a rail. So it's not always, you know, people who uh, are overweight or obese or whatever. There are many factors involved in in getting type 2 diabetes. Okay, now I'm going to go rapid fire at you because I'm going to throw some names at you. that you were associated with, and you can give me a brief synopsis. Okay. Let me, let me start with Clyde Kennard. 
Oh, man. The saddest story in the Civil Rights Movement in Mississippi. He, um, he was a, a veteran, uh, well, actually came in the end of World War II and taught Nazi kids, you know, the Nazification classes, as they called them, uh, and then fought in war and fought in Korea. Came home on a GI Bill uh, to try to go to uh, finish his college, you know, to do his college education. And then his mom, mom, um, or stepfather got sick, so he had to come home to help his mom in Mississippi, which was in Hattiesburg area. And so he wanted to finish his college education, but the only college locally was an all-white college. So he tried to enroll, and basically I got railroaded. Um, and uh, initially they arrested him for illegal liquor, which he didn't even drink, you know. And then, and then, then that didn't take, you know. He didn't. It was, you know, uh, he got convicted, but it was, you know, misdemeanor. Mm-hmm. And then when he didn't stop. They got him for "quote unquote" stealing chicken feed, and uh, so he went to prison for seven years. And uh, just off, feed. yeah, it's just off. And the, and the and the admitted thief, I did come back, um, and then got and got the admitted thief. I interviewed the admitted thief who um, said Clyde didn't do anything wrong, and uh, so anyway, he was exonerated and. 2006, you know, albeit, you know, he had died of cancer. They they didn't catch the cancer while he was in prison. He had colon cancer. Mm. And um, and so he died. He died on the same day of the document in 1963 of the document that declares all men are created equal. Mm. And, and I also saw that they didn't give him much treatment while he was in prison. No, they didn't. I mean, it, you know, prison is is awful. And uh, anyway, they no, there was I mean, especially in those days. There was, you know, it's bad enough now. But in the, in the, those days, healthcare was non-existent, pretty much. All right, and a uh, couple more because this this gentleman doesn't just work on civil rights things. So I'm gonna throw a couple more names at him. Felix Vale. Yeah, that's a serial killer I wrote about. He went to went to prison. Yeah, that's a that was a wild case. Um, I had I'll tell the story how I got into that case real quick. Um, so I had this mother contact me and told me how you know her daughter had been married to Felix. She had disappeared. And turns out, well, Felix was married to his first wife. Um, and she, quote, unquote, drowned accidentally. This was in 1962. And then 11 years later, his next wife, quote, unquote, uh, disappeared. And 11 years after that, this other wife disappears. You know, what What are the odds, you know? And, uh, <laughs> right. And so uh, this mom approached me and said she was going to go. She you know, told me she was going to go confront Felix, who lived in Mississippi. She said, "Would you be interested?" What she said initially, "Would you be interested in writing about a serial killer who lived in Mississippi?" I said, "Well, yeah." So, and so she told me all about this, and then she decided she was going to go confront him in person. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, "Well, I want to be there for that. I want to be there. I'm a reporter. I'm not a dummy, you know. <laughs> I, mean, I don't want to be there for that." So I met her and we went to where Felix I didn't even know where he lived she knew where he lived and 
we went there and we got to where he lived and the gate was locked. So she hopped over the gate. <laughs> so I followed her. <laughs> so we went down this little, you know, dirt road and, and eventually it cleared, cleared out. You know, the weeds were, I swear, it seemed like they were 10 feet high. They may not have been that high, but they sure seemed that high. And, the, you know, the grass wasn't cut. Hmm. And then we got to clearing where the grass was cut. And it was this Airstream trailer. And she goes up and knocks on the door. No answer. So I'm curious. So I, you know, peek in the window <laughs> just to see maybe he's there and not answering or whatever. I didn't see I didn't see him. But and then I start looking around. There are all these woods around us. I'm going, what? you know, I'm really, you know, t- trying to take my surroundings in. And the next thing I look up, she's off at this other trailer, which is on the same property. And by the time I got over there, she'd figured out that the back window was missing, so she crawled inside. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and she got in, and she opened the door, so now I could see in. I wasn't gonna, I wasn't actually going to get in the trailer. I didn't want to be accused of trespassing, but she had no problem with that. And she, she, so she opened the front door so I could see. And she starts rummaging around. Next thing you know, she throws out a machete, and it clanks on the floor. And then another machete, and then another machete, and then all these swords. And I'm like... What have I gotten myself into? <laughs> so uh, I ended up writing about a 9,000-word piece on that. Uh, well, I, one of the things she had, she had about two-inch thick folder full of, you know, newspaper articles, documents she had. She was very, I mean, this was invaluable to me. Uh, it made it a lot easier to do, what I, you know, reporting I needed to do. Well, one of one of the things he had in there was a uh, autopsy of the first wife, so I sent that to Dr. Michael Bond, who's a pretty renowned pathologist, and I've met, gotten to know him because he did the Meg Rivers autopsy, and so he um, or second autopsy, I should say, he looked at it and went, you know, this is a homicide. I said, really? He's like, yeah. I said, bruises on the back of the head, and there's a scarf four inches in her mouth. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> story. I did like a nine thousand word story, and he got arrested seven months later, and wow. was convicted in two thousand sixteen, and and um, still in prison. It's to my knowledge, it's the oldest solved cold case in U.S. history. It's uh, fifty, almost fifty four years between the, when he murdered his first wife and uh, when he was convicted. So yeah. Did he ever know you guys were on his property? I I come to find out, (laughs) come to find out he had an apartment, (laughs) uh, which we didn't know, um, in in another town. Oh, my. It was in Starkville, which is where Mississippi State University is. Uh, But I found out later that's where he was living. He got, because his trailer got wrecked, Mm -hmm. he got a new trailer and his trailer got wrecked, so... He got some kind of FEMA money to be able to live in this uh, trailer park for, I guess, for free or whatever it was. I don't know what the deal was. But and then I ended up interviewing some people in the trailer park who actually got to know him a little bit. So um, really fascinating. So that's where he was spending most of his time was at the, was at the, uh, at the trailer park in Starkville. He disappeared in the middle of my reporting. And <laughs> I didn't know where he went. And... And so when I wrote the 9,000-word piece, I didn't know where he went. But apparently the, the article made the rounds, 
And I, I started hearing from people. There were about two or three people that reached out to me and go, I know where he is. Oh. So, uh, so he moved to uh, Kenya Lake, Texas, so found him over there. It's getting out of Dodge. All right, Michelle Bryan. If I, am I saying her Byram? Byram, yeah, yeah. She was on death row, uh, and I wrote about her case, and and I know the Jackson Free Press wrote about it too, and she was, uh, she ended up being uh, cleared, you know, you know, taken out. She was freed from death row. Mm. That's a that was a wild case. I mean, it, it was ridiculous. I mean, the the judge really acted wrongly in that case uh, pretty badly concealed evidence that would have potentially cleared her um, from the defense so it's, I've never heard of a judge do that do that yeah. do that case so and it was a, and then sentenced her to death even after there was a, the son who confessed to a psychologist that he had done it and and yet sat there and sentenced her to death I was like man that's guts what does she do to him? Well, unfortunately, she's deceased now, but she she is freed. She was freed. What was that? I'm trying to think what year that was. 18, maybe? Something like that. Uh, she just died Died within the past year or two. I did my homework, so, yes, she was, uh, 2015, she was freed. That's it, 2015. Mm-hmm. Time goes by, yeah. So it was 15. I don't get pictures. So anyway. And Carol Baskin may be on your radar. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm not, you know, I think people, uh, I've been working on the Don Lewis case. I'm sorry. Um, That's I don't know anything against her personally. Uh, it's just looking at Don Lewis's disappearance and uh, what are the details of that and what can we find out? And yeah, it's it's a fascinating case. Yeah. Um, any cases on your uh, that you're currently working on that you can speak of, or you got to keep that in mind? Yeah, there's a, yeah. I won't mention this one by name, but there's a, a case um, we're probably going to work on um, in Mississippi. This woman who's in prison, uh, and it seems pretty obvious. She's innocent. Um, she was, you know, basically the details are this. The guy was, this guy was, uh, he and his girlfriend, you know, I guess broke up essentially. She broke up with him. And then he goes to the older sister and says, hey, there's a raccoon out here. I need, you know, need to kill him. You got a gun and. You got a twenty-two. I just need one bullet. She's like, you kill a raccoon. You might need more than one bullet. You know, here you go. And so gives him that. And then she says, or so I guess this is maybe how country folks think. I don't know. But she says, and when you kill him, bring him back here so I can see. <laughs> <laughs> and so she hears, she hears the the shot, and um, then he doesn't come back. And so she goes outside, and he's in the driveway, and uh, uh, and and shot shot himself. And the and the and the incredible thing is, the pathologist in the case claimed that he could not it could not have been a self inflicted wound because the bullet came in straight. And I'm like, that is the most ridiculous 
thing I think I have ever heard. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I've covered plenty of trials. I mean, bullet trajectory coming in, a bullet coming in straight and can't be self-inflicted? Are you kidding me? What? I mean, why do you say that? Mm-hmm. That's that's a ridiculous. That's a ridiculous statement. It has no scientific support. Um. Anyway, so we're working on that case, and um, it seems pretty obvious. Like in the the one we were talking about before, Michelle Byron, that um, you know this woman. Certainly, from what we've seen so far, appears to be innocent. Hmm. Um, what is it like to see yourself being portrayed on film? On film, that was, that was a little strange. It was. Uh, I really of Mississippi. I actually enjoyed watching them film a lot of it. Uh, that was enjoyable. Um, my, you know, seeing myself portrayed, not so much. I, I don't know. I just, you know, it was just. I don't know. I thought my, you know, the, the, I thought not beating up with the filmmakers, but I thought that the depiction of my character was a little hokey, you know. But that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it was just it was just kind of like, you know, the typical you know stereotypical way that they portray reporters, which mm-hmm. okay, you know, I, I accept that. I'm willing to accept that. I, I don't mind. I mean, you know. You know, I'm flattered, I guess, that they portrayed me, I guess. Yeah. Um, and you know what? Lastly, um, I'll, let the, I'll let you tell the uh, audience about your books, um, The Preacher and the Klansman. Uh, the Race oh, yeah. The I wrote that years ago. And Is that still in print? Well, sort of. John Perkins still has copies of it. <laughs> Yeah. I wish I wish I had an uh, electronic copy of it so I could, you know, we could reproduce it more, but... Um, yeah, I wrote that years ago. It's a story of John Perkins, who's a black preacher who got involved in the civil rights movement, and Tommy Terrence, who's a Klansman who was involved in a lot of violence uh, against African American and uh, leaders and Jewish leaders um, in the '60s. And so, um, the the story ends with them becoming friends, and uh, Tommy leaves his wife, Klan life, and you know. Um, and now is you know really fascinating guy. In fact, he just came out with a book. I haven't read his new book, but he kind of talks about those days. So um, I certainly interviewed him at length about it for Preacher and Klansman. So, but he's a changed person. I know that. I've been I've talked to him many many times. He's not he's not the same same that he was. Mm, praise God. Amen. And most recently, Race Against Time. Yeah, Race Against Time, my book uh, for Simon Schuster came out last year. It's in paperback now. Um, it's just kind of the story of, in my mind, the story of these kind of courageous families and what they went through and kind of the steps that, that took place for these cases to be reopened and reprosecuted, really in almost all these cases against impossible odds. And... Um, as I mentioned, I kind of went and interviewed the killers in almost every one of these cases. I talked to the killers in every case, but Bowers was the only one I couldn't really get a sit-down interview with. But I I knew if they talked to me, they might possibly say something that would, you know, um, you know, implicate them or, you know, trip them up. Um like a simple, quick example, Bobby Cherry, who was the last, one of the last living suspects in the Birmingham church bombing, you know, they killed the four little girls. Yeah. In 
1963. Um, so I went and interviewed him, and he swore to me that he was watching wrestling that night. Like, he couldn't have done it. He couldn't have planted the bomb because he was watching wrestling that night on television. And, and so one of the basic rules of journalism, and this is the way we say it in the South, even if your mama tells you she loves you, check it out. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah. So I'm so I'm at the newsroom the next day. I'm going to Susan Garcia, our librarian. Says Susan, check with the Birmingham News and see what was on TV that night. Because I remember from when I was a kid, they used to run the TV schedules in the newspaper. Mm-hmm. So the next day, Susan came back to me and said there was no wrestling. Uh, I was like, what a dummy. <laughs> So I wrote a story, and he got arrested, and, you know, it's just, uh, it's wild. You know, as I always say about these cases, um, it's a matter of faith for me, but I believe God's hand's been involved in these cases. I mean, just impossible odds. But but why? Because God loves justice. Justice. He does love justice, and we just need to remember that. And, And that we, when we pursue justice, we are doing God's work. Amen. Amen. Um, I'll let you close. Um, where can people find you in, um, as far as social media goes? Where can the people find you at? Yeah, yeah. Well, my Facebook page, I kind of mentioned earlier, which I post every day, kind of today in civil rights history, is Jerry.Mitchell. Like on Facebook, I'm talking about Jerry.Mitchell.5872. I think I've got that right. Uh, so if people want to follow me, just follow me on Facebook, and you'll you'll be able to get what I'm talking about. Um, on Twitter, I'm J Mitchell News, just the letter J and then Mitchell M I T C H E L L, and then News N E W S on Twitter. And so those are the ways you can follow me. Um, and I, I put I put the the same thing out on Twitter. Only obviously it's kind of squeezed down. I mean yeah. sometimes my Facebook entries are pretty long, so. Yeah, there's, there's some fascinating pictures and stuff in there. Yeah, yeah, I, I try to post pictures in connection with it, and and uh, it's always fascinating because I mean, a lot of times people will come on there and go, "That was my grandfather," or you know what I mean. There's there there a lot of times there are connections between the people who are on my page and or people who come onto the page, and uh, and the things I write about, which is always fascinating, you know, or maybe people. Maybe they're from Tulsa. Let's say I wrote about Tulsa. You know, they they say, they, they tell some other detail about it that um, that I don't have, and I always appreciate that as well. Uh, to, you know, for people to have a discussion about what happened or um, whatever that the situation happens to be. Yeah, I, I gotta let you go. Um, I'm a historic and historical junkie so i i literally could talk for another two or three hours yeah well i appreciate appreciate you having me very much before uh, and again i'm honored it's a, it's a true honor um not only for your work cause and, and and again to know that i have a brother in christ that um pursues justice the way he has um and it really doesn't you know it doesn't matter at the end of the day it doesn't matter the nationality of the no. Uh, people involved in these cases, like you said, God is a God of justice, and and exactly. color has no equation to that. This is exactly it, and I think people fail to realize that. And it's like um, I've certainly been called inward lover and all sorts <laughs> of other things, you know, choice things right. along that. 
That might be one of the nice things I've been called anyway. But, uh, you know, look, you know, I remember I was on this black radio show one time. The host was like, Jerry, you're white. Why are you doing this? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. I'm like, well, justice is justice. You know, it's it's not about, you know, it's not about color. It's about doing what's right, you know, and doing what I always say it this way. You got to have the truth before you have justice. Yeah. And even if you can't get justice, if justice is impossible, let's say in a courtroom, mm-hmm. you can still have the truth. Absolutely. And that's why we need the truth. Yeah. I see you got some, I know the audience won't be able to see this, but I like the, we've well, got Freedom Riders on your shirt there. Yeah, it's a Freedom Riders shirt. It says, uh, it's a picture of the arrested Freedom Riders. Mm-hmm. If you ever go to the Civil Rights Museum in Mississippi, um, these photos are you know, there are hundreds of these, and they're on a wall, including, like, John Lewis. A lot of the people in the Civil Rights Movement, you would know from the Civil Rights Movement, are, are among those pictures. They were among the Freedom Riders in 1961 who were arrested and then sent to Parchment. And I was telling you about the horrible prison. They all got sent to that horrible prison in Mississippi, Parchment. But um, but it says underneath that, it's a quote from Meg Revers, um, freedom is never free. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I love I love the I love the shirt and I love the quote. So it's a, a great reminder, you know, of um, yeah, freedom isn't free. It's uh, it's uh, you know, and we think about that from a faith perspective as well. You know, yeah. it's freedom wasn't free, you know, to us. It's free. It's free to us, but it wasn't free. It was paid for. You know. Yeah. So, so anyway. Even Christ's love, which was freely given, had a cost. Exactly. Yeah. Brother Lewis, Mr. Lewis, thank you. Thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you. I really, Thanks. really appreciate, appreciate it. it. Appreciate you having me. And, uh, yeah, I, um, I hope, you know, I hope and pray that people will, you know, begin to learn the truth. And I think that's important for us to begin those steps that we need to take. As brothers and sisters, we, we need this. We need the we need a discussion. I think that's part of what hasn't happened. And I think basically, um, you know, for you know, I'm speaking as a white American. Um, I think that we need to listen. We don't do a very good job of listening, and we need to listen so we can better understand the experiences of Black Americans in this country, so that we can uh, so we can begin to learn. Yeah, we can begin to empathize. Um, and that that that's how healing begins. Amen. America will never reach its full potential until that happens. Amen. All right, I'll let you go, sir. Good night. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. God bless. Thanks for joining me. God bless you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for checking out this episode of Liberation. Subscribe to the show and follow Liberation on Twitter and Instagram at Liberation underscore Pod. Liberation is sponsored by Doodlebugs by Davida. Thoughtful handmade jewelry designs inspired by love, peace, and unity. Shop Doodlebugs at doodlebugsbydavita.square.site. And for the Etsy lovers, it's doodlebugsbydavita.etsy.com. Use the promo code LIBERATION and get 10% off your order. Follow Doodlebugs on Twitter at doodlebugs for you. That's 
Doodlebugs, the number four, the letter U. And Instagram, Doodlebugs by DeVito.